Good morning. I'd just like to say thank you for blessing Kathleen and me for your invitation to be here, and uh, it's just a real joy and privilege for us. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, and we'll read the first 12 verses. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Reading at verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Let me reread verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Today and next week, I want to consider with you two of the great texts of the Bible. And Jesus says of this text, verse 12, this is the law and the prophets. And I can think of no greater endorsement than that of Jesus. Jesus tells us that in this verse, we have contained the entire Old Testament. And I think that fact alone makes this verse one of the greater texts of the Scriptures. In this text, Jesus brings the Sermon on the Mount to its climax. In this text, it all seems to come together. Up to this point in his sermon... Jesus has been describing the character traits of those upon whom the kingdom of God has come. And then he sums it all up. And he does so in one little sentence. And many scholars call the text before us the Mount Everest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because from its height, we can see everything else 
so very clearly. One of the things about Jesus himself that stands out to me in this text is his wisdom. And I confess I stand in awe at the sheer brilliance of the carpenter from Nazareth. As I said before, up to this point in the sermon, Jesus has been describing the character traits, the behavior patterns, the the habits of the heart of true believers. And then he focuses it all on one sentence. In one deceptively simple sentence. This one sentence from the 18th century on has been called the golden rule. And I like how the NIV puts it. In everything... Everything. Everything. Did you get that? Everything. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And it's brilliant. Early in his sermon, Jesus said, I have come not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill And now he gives us the fulfillment. However you want people to treat you, so treat them. Now, at this point, someone might say to me, excuse me, but why does this one sentence reveal the brilliance of Jesus? Isn't Jesus basically saying what other people have been saying for a long time? Is it not true that other people have made similar sounding statements? For example, Confucius. Confucius was asked, is there one word which may serve as the rule for the whole of life? And Confucius said, is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourselves Do not do to others. And then there is Socrates who said, What stirs up anger when done to you by others, that do not do. In other words, if criticism stirs up your anger, well, don't criticize. And then there is the philosopher Epictetus who condemned slavery on the principle that when you avoid suffering yourself, you are not to inflict on others. If I want to avoid having a pain in my neck, don't give someone else a pain in the neck. You know, it's pretty simple. And there are a few ethical leaders of Judaism. There was the Rabbi Shammai and the Rabbi Hillel. And as the story goes, a heathen Gentile came to the Rabbi Shammai and said, I am prepared to convert to Judaism on the condition that you teach me the whole law while I am standing on one leg. Rabbi Shammai was disgusted and drove him away. The man then went to Rabbi Hillel who answered, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. 
Go and learn. And then there's the book Tobit, where the aged aged Tobias tells his son that all you need for life is what what you yourself hate to no one do. And there are still more. It seems that in its negative form, this rule is in fact the basis for all ethical teaching in centuries past and in our current century. But no one but Jesus ever put it in its positive form, so says Professor Daryl Johnson and William Barclay, and I confess I have not found it either in its positive form, except for Jesus. And I'd like for us to consider just how the positive form of the golden rule differs from the negative form. And I'd like for us to see how much more demanding the positive is and how much more demanding it is that any teacher ever demanded before. The negative form of the rule involves nothing more than not doing certain things. It means refraining from certain actions. It is never difficult to not do things. That we must do no injury to another is really a legal principle. It is the kind of rule that can be easily kept by even an unbeliever. A man could satisfy the negative form of the rule by simply not doing anything. And if he consistently did nothing, he would never break that. So just don't do anything. Go to your room and stay there. But I'd like to say... A goodness which consists in doing nothing is a contradiction of everything that Christian goodness means. The attitude which says I must do no harm to people is quite different than the attitude which says I must do my best to help people. Rather than doing nothing, I am doing something to help. It is a far harder thing to make choices that take us out of our way to be as kind to people as we would wish them to be to us. Do to others what you want them to do to you. If I want to, if I try to forgive, as I would wish to be forgiven, then I'm going to go to great lengths to forgive. To help as I would wish to be helped. To understand as I wished to be understood. Let me ask you a few questions. How should I treat my child that has a problem with bladder control? Well, how would I want to be treated if I were a child that had that problem? 
How should I treat my aging parents? Well, how would I want to be treated if I were elderly? How would I want to treat the immigrants of our county? Well, how would I want to be treated if I were an immigrant? How should I treat those people who have AIDS? Well, how would I want to be treated if I had AIDS? And I'm sure you could think of a lot of other illustrations. A man by the name of Dale Bruner wrote, Disciples can know the will of God for their relationships most of the time by consulting their own self-interests. And Jesus simplifies even more. He says to us, Consult your own self-interests and then act to the other along those same lines. If I want kindness from my neighbor, kindness is my self-interest, right? And I should therefore be kind to my neighbor. We consult our self-interests. If my self-interest is to have the last piece of pie in the refrigerator, and then because I remember the golden rule, oh dear, I offer to share it with my wife. You know what? I am freed from my own selfishness. My self-interest, in this case, is set aside. And here is the brilliance of what Jesus says. I am freed from greed and self-interest. Now, we've been focusing on only one sentence in the text that Jesus said to us. And that's because in verse 12, the central verse of the text, but we read 11 other verses. Why? Because there is one word in verse 12, and it's the word therefore. Unfortunately, the NIV translation, for some unknown reason to me, has left it out. The word therefore is important because it gives the golden rule a context. And as someone said, a text without its context is a pretext. The golden rule begins with the word therefore. And I'm sure you've all heard of the rule that whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible... You have to ask the question, why is the word therefore, therefore? The word therefore in the golden rule points us back to the words of Jesus that he spoke before he gave the rule. Words which Jesus apparently felt were needed to be heard before he gave us the golden rule. You follow me? And I submit to you that in the 11 verses which come before the golden rule, Jesus is addressing three ways which, which people wish people would treat them. Three ways. The first way is in verses 1 to 4. 
The second way is in verses 5 to 6, and the third way is in verses 7 to 11. Three ways we wish other people would treat us. Hope you're with me. Let's go through these three ways separately. First, Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Do not judge. How many here just love to be judged? Huh? Just, oh, please judge me, you know. How, how many of you want, want that done? This verse is one of the most often quoted, but I believe the least understood sayings of Jesus. And I agree with those who argue that when Jesus says, judge not, he does not mean turn a blind eye to another's fault. He doesn't mean to act as if you didn't see another person cheat. He doesn't mean refuse to discern. He does not mean suspend your critical faculties. You know, we simply cannot function in life unless we make judgments. Parents must continually make judgments as we raise our children. Is this good for them or is it bad for them? Is it good or is it bad? And we have to judge. We have to discriminate. We have to discern. Political and business leaders constantly make judgments. Otherwise, society would collapse. How are we going to vote unless we discern the character issue of candidates? Jesus does not mean by judge not. He does not mean don't make value judgments. The fact is that the whole Sermon on the Mount is one, is one sustained call to discern and to choose. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. you got to discern. Whatever else it means, it's a clear call to engage in critical thinking. We need to discern what is sacred and what is valuable and then do it. I agree with those who say when Jesus says judge, judge not, he means condemn not. He means do not pass the sentence on another. He means do not render the final verdict, final verdict on another. He means don't close the book on another person and on another person's character. And Jesus then gives us a good number of reasons for this exhortation. For one thing, none of us knows all the facts. You know that? None of us. We neither know all the circumstances nor all that is going on the inside of another person. And because we don't know it, all of the facts, because we don't know all of the facts, we cannot possibly render an accurate final verdict. We cannot close the book on another person for another reason. To judge in the sense of passing sentence on another person, you know what? That's God's business. 
and only God's. To close the book on another person and say, well, there goes another loser. Or she is hopeless and helpless is to take the place of God and therefore to be guilty of one of the greatest of all sins. And let me give you a two-bit word. It's the sin of hubris or extreme pride. The sin of playing God. Only God, only God can write the final sentence on a person's life. And thanks be to God that for those in Jesus Christ, that final sentence is full of mercy and grace. The Apostle Paul wrote that great sentence in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation. No condemnation. That word no in the Greek is in the emphatic. And it means no condemnation today. No condemnation tomorrow. Next week. Next month. Next year. Next decade. Next century. Next millennium. No condemnation. We cannot close the book on another person for still another reason. Jesus says that the ruler that we use will be used on us. Yikes. In the same way you judge others, you yourself will be judged. With the measure that you use, that I use, it will be measured on you, on us. Someone has rightly said that ought to frighten us all to be merciful and gracious. And I thank God that God does not use the ruler on me that I have sometimes used on others. No, I want to be treated with compassion, with mercy, and with forgiveness. So that's what I should do. That's what you should do. Is to treat others with compassion, with mercy, And with forgiveness. And probably some other things. One last reason we cannot close the book on another person. More often than we care to admit, our judgments of another person is but a reflection of our own sin. And that's what I think Jesus is referring to when he refers to the plank And to the sawdust, that specks of sawdust in our eyes. It's very possible that the speck of dust that we see in another person's eye is but a reflection of the plank in our own eye. And nowhere is this principle more involved than when we judge other people for being proud. When we judge them for being proud, you know, not me, them. If we were to say, Henry is so proud that he makes me sick, it is very likely that I have that same kind of problem. C.S. Lewis says of pride that the more we have pride in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Then Lewis goes on to say, 
If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? Or how much do I dislike it when other people refuse to take any notice of me? Or patronize? Or show off? Now, in the last point, Lewis gives this illustration. He says, it is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am annoyed at someone else's trying to be the big noise. I see a lot of nodding. You all know about that one, huh? The speck I'm so concerned about in your eye just may be the reflection of the plank in mine. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Do not close the book on someone else. And all of this makes me agree with E. Stanley Jones when he said, the attitude of censoriousness or judgment is always the sign of a declining spiritual life. And, he said further, when religious people begin backsliding, they begin backbiting. So, the first specific of the golden rule, do not close the book on another person. And when I apply the golden rule, I hear it saying this to me. You don't want that done to you. You want people to think kindly of you, don't you? So, Hugo, be kind to other people. Be forgiving of other people. Bless other people. Now, the second way we want people to treat us is to be helped to stay on track. And I want to point out a neglected little line in the text. It's in verse 5, which says, Remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus acknowledges that, a matter, that as a matter of fact, there is a real foreign object in your brother's eye. There is actually a real detriment to the spiritual life in a sister or brother that I can see. Remove the speck from your brother's eye. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Remove the speck from your brother's eye. Just do it between the two of you. We're to do it privately and with the spirit of humility. We owe it to one another as fellow travelers, as members of the body of Christ, To let one another know when we are off the rails of the kingdom of God. You ever get off the rails? It's just that we are to deal with our being off the track. With our own being off the track first. When we deal with ourselves and that issue, then we're able in a spirit of mercy and grace to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Because I know, generally, that I fail, because I know that, I will seek to help my brother 
because I want him at the appropriate time to help me also. That's the application of the golden rule. I want that person to help take that speck out of my eye. To help me in my spiritual life. But I need to do that too. And this brings us to the third specific of the golden rule and another way we want people to treat us. Ask, seek, knock, says Jesus. Now, many commentators are puzzled that this teaching on prayer should come at this place in the sermon. Isn't it strange when you read this? Judge not, take this back out, ask and you shall receive. You know. Why here? Why not have this teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 6? Right after he gives us the Lord's Prayer. You know, it would follow, you know, logically, wouldn't it? It seemed like it would. I'd like to offer the following, and I think it may be worthwhile considering. And it's this. Jesus is saying that the only way to avoid a judgmental attitude towards others, the only way that we can graciously and unoffensively help the brother or sister who is going astray is if we pray for them. We need to pray for one another that we don't get off the track. We need to pray for one another that we would not have the attitude of judging, of judging or condemning. We need to pray for one another because these are horrible attitudes. What would you think of this kind of rule for San Ramon Valley Bible Church? No one can complain about anybody else in the life of the church unless they have prayed for 30 days. Huh? What would you think of that? One of the rules I have for myself in counseling is that a person can talk all they want about themselves. But they cannot, must not talk negatively about another person unless that person is present. For example, I don't want to hear juicy tidbits about a spouse, even though I'm assured that this will help me to understand how deep and how terrible the dilemma is. Don't talk about your, sp- these, your spouse if they're not present. Talk about yourself. Ask, seek, knock. It is the only added antidote to judgment. Well, maybe 30 days is too long. What about 15 days? But you get the point, right? And it's at this point of the text that Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together speaks, and I think in a very profound way. And I'd like to read to you what he says. He says, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the prayers of its members for one another, or it collapses. The Christian fellowship can collapse because we exist by the prayers of its members. 
He goes on, I can no longer condemn or hate a person for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble he or she causes me. The person's face that may have been a stranger and intolerable to me is transformed through my prayers into the countenance of a brother or sister for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. It's when I pray for someone other. I don't know whether I've told you this story before. Uh, as a teacher in a Bible school, I had my office on one side of the hall and another brother was on the other side, another teacher. And uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, we um, weren't talking to each other or not very much. His class was at 8 o'clock. I had a 9 o'clock class. And uh, I would meet him outside as he was returning from his class and I was going to my class. Hi. Just go on. And uh, I became very uncomfortable with that. And um, I didn't know what to do. I reasoned. He's the senior member here. He was here before I got there. Uh, he should start it. You know, he should. That's his. Uh, why should I start it? But uh, I wasn't comfortable with that either. And so, began to pray about it. And as Bonhoeffer says, the person's face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed through intercession. It's changed through my prayers. That person's face has changed as I see his face. And uh, you know what? <laughs> it worked just as Bonhoeffer suggests it would work. When we pray for another, when we pray for a brother or sister with whom we don't get along very well, their countenance is changed as an individual for whom Christ died. And we see that person differently. How do you want people to treat you? I know how I want people to treat me. I don't want anyone to close the book on me. Not yet. I want to be given the chance and the opportunity to change. To grow. To mature. And I want to be shown when I get off the track. And some people have done that with me. At first blush, sometimes I resented it. But uh, thank God, it continued. They continued. They persisted. And I imagine they prayed. And I was helped. So I want to be, uh, I want to be shown when I'm off track and I want to be helped to get back on track. And then I also want to be carried to the foot of the cross. To be prayed for. I want to be brought to the throne of grace where I can be given mercy and life. And friends, you know what Jesus says? 
do the same for others. However you want people to treat you, treat them the same way. And that sums it all up. When I have a great need, I want people to pray for me. And if this is the way I really want want it to be, then I should pray for them. In everything. You know, that doesn't leave much out. You know, you can think of all kinds of situations. It doesn't leave much out. In everything. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is the practical way to live. To bless rather than to curse. To help rather than put down. I'd like to say something about you folks. (laughs) You all here have demonstrated kindness and love to Kathleen and me. And can we do nothing less than to treat you the way you've treated us? Namely, but to love you all in return. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you're easy to love. Some say that in order for us to keep the golden rule, we're going to have to become new people. And I agree. And there's opportunity even this morning to acknowledge a failure and turn to God who we know that when we were ungodly, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we had uh, made new resolutions, turned over a new leaf, you know, and become somewhat acceptable. Uh, He died for us when we were ungodly. And Jesus invites us to come to Him and receive the grace and forgiveness that He freely offers. And if He did so much for me, how should I respond to Him? According to the Golden Rule, I ought to respond to him with a great big thank you, Lord. With a great big, yes, I come. I come to you now and give you thanks for all that you have done for me. So that's my invitation this morning. It's for any here who don't know the Savior have not received His forgiveness, who don't even realize that when we were ungodly, Christ died for us. And the text goes on to say, when we were helpless and hopeless, ungodly, Christ died for us. Well, the least I can do is to acknowledge with a thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord for this uh, text. For this text which you exemplified so perfectly in your life. 
And Father, we do pray for one another that, uh, Lord, um, that we will be uh, doers of the word and not hearers only. Bless this congregation of your people. Father, we do pray that your spirit will indeed continue in his work of transforming, of building, of um, drawing us close together, of making us one even more closely. So, Father, we uh, say thank you. And as Randy sang to us so beautifully before, that we might know him, come to know him in his death and resurrection. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning. Dismiss us now with your blessing, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.